0: Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45 minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at kenmoreair.com.
1: Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and we're going to review the week. That's what we do. And I have a panel here made up of KUOW arts and culture reporter. Welcome back, Mike Davis. Hey, Bill. Alex Hudson, executive director of Commute Seattle, transit mobility policy expert, former Seattle City Council candidate. Welcome to the show, Alex. It's great to be here. Thank you. Saul Gameron, president of Gameron Legal Consulting and Washington State chair of the Nikki Haley for President campaign. Welcome, Saul. Thank you. What are the odds that your candidate will still be on the Washington State primary ballot on March 12th?
2: That would be 100%. Bill, the really? ballots have already been printed. Oh, that's true. Chris Christie is on. on that ballot, <laughs> okay. so she is definitely on the ballot.
1: <laughs> Good point. Well, uh, what about her candidacy? She uh, it didn't didn't go well in Nevada. More people voted for none of the above than voted for for Nikki Haley. Why why stay in at this point?
2: Well, you know, right now she's campaigning hard in South Carolina, her home state. Mm-hmm. Uh, she gained 25 points in uh, New Hampshire the last three weeks. She's gaining in South Carolina. She needs to do well. And then on to Super Tuesday, uh, anything can happen. And she's a fighter. And you can see she's taking on Trump a lot more now. Yes. And uh, we believe in her. And, uh, you know, her chances are not as good as, they, uh, as I'd like them to be. But we're fighting on. Is this a PTSD for you, uh,
1: Alex, as a recent candidate for public office, trying to get people's attention, win them over?
3: You know, it is isn't always interesting to hear, like, how do you make a narrative that people are responding to? But I certainly wasn't running uh, against someone like Donald Trump or under the kind of conditions that, that uh, Nikki Haley is running. I'm curious about the likelihood that Donald Trump will be on the ballots. Um, right. This is a, an ongoing conversation. And the Supreme Court's taking up this issue. And uh, whether or not you know, you asked why stay in. Well, part of the reason is is it's not really a sure thing that the the presumptive front runner is going to be on the ballot this year.
1: Although the Supreme Court seemed even more skeptical than I expected. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not hearing people think that the Supreme Court is going to let Colorado or any other state keep him off the ballot for insurrection.
2: I think they're going to rule eight to one, or possibly even nine zero in his favor in this case.
1: Yeah. Um, and by the way, you have said that you would not support trump it 's not like Trump is your second favorite republican candidate you 're not you 're not on the trump train
2: i 'm in favor of people who support democracy and i 'm opposed to people who are anti democratic so While I agree with many of trump 's policies, I could not support him
1: um, You know the uh, special counsel declined to charge. Biden over um, classified documents. And I wanted to ask you something about part of Nikki Haley's reaction uh, on, on Twitter, now X. She wrote that the double standard is glaring. Joe Biden and Donald Trump were reckless with classified documents. But isn't that eliding important differences between those cases. Biden, those those documents were turned over to the National Archives the day after they were found. And whereas this is, I'm quoting the special counsel now, quote, after being given multiple chances to return classified documents and avoid prosecution, Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite. According to the indictment, he not only refused to return the documents for many months, but he also obstructed justice by enlisting others to destroy evidence and then to lie about it. So I'm asking whether your candidate should do a better job helping voters and, and Americans understand the difference between those cases, not saying that it's a
2: it's a double standard, that, that one is charged and the other's not. I think she was spot on, and I do think it's a double standard. Here's why. I think one person voluntary, voluntarily returning the documents right away would impact the punishment that a person would get versus someone who holds on to them and holds on to them and never gives them back. But the underlying offense is the same for both, is they willfully took classified documents to their home and didn't secure them. And uh, it seems that the reason Biden's not charged is because the president is of diminished capacity. And I don't think that's uh, reasonable. Yeah, this gets to something that the special counsel uh, wrote,
1: that Biden's, quote, memory was significantly limited based on his interviews with investigators. Although a lot of people who are getting prosecuted suddenly have limited memories.
2: <laughs>
1: well, you know? I mean, he, even, the, even the special counsel wrote about, well, Biden might be presenting himself as a, a he, how he worded it, something like
2: a, uh, a kindly, you know, old gentleman with limited memory. Well, both, both President Biden and, and former President Trump uh, are diminished I think Nikki Haley is right when she calls for mental competency tests for people over 75. As we all know, there's some people that are in their 80s that are ahead of us and can still beat us in Scrabble. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's some people who aren't, and I think both of these men are diminished. How would that mental competency
1: test work? What would the test be like? Would it be a rapid reaction test or more like the SAT or Or a fact, a factual quiz?
2: There are experts, such as at the University of Washington, who do memory tests all the time. They can recall, you know, what did you have for breakfast today? Uh, This sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And there's questions that can ask whether a person's brain is still on high alert. Yeah. Would Ronald Reagan have passed that test? At what point? Yeah. (laughs) Especially second term? I doubt it.
1: Yeah. Uh, Any anything else? We're going to talk local news as we normally do. But here we have the state, the Washington state chair of the Nikki Haley campaign. Anything else uh, you're curious about, team?
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously no one, I'll speak for myself, not super interested in living in a gerontocracy, right, and having the oldest president in history. Come in for another four years, and I think that we need to be really serious about the ways in which we are recruiting new talent, that we are training up a new bench, a new generation of leaders and folks who can uh, rise to meet the challenges of today and tomorrow in in pursuing elected office, and um, and I think that this is a, a stark example. We've seen many of them in in Congress and in the Senate. Examples of people who um, have. Served their time, done an incredible job leading, and, and, and need to practice the fine art of letting others take a turn. Mm-hmm.
2: Alex, I think you're right. I mean, campaigns end when they run out of money. And Nikki Haley's donors are fired up, and she's been raising tremendous amounts of money recently. And to follow what you're saying, part of leadership is to pass on the leadership to the next generation. And I think both parties have not done a good job, and I'm hoping Nikki can uh, emerge. All right, well, we'll see. The
1: Washington state primary is Tuesday, March 12th. Um, so, uh, and Nikki Haley will be on that ballot. She sure will. Saying. Yeah. Okay, so uh, now turning to local news, uh, Washington state and Seattle, we're going to talk affordable housing. That could lead the show any week, week after week. And there's a Seattle group now collecting signatures to, m- to put a new tax On the ballot. This is a tax on businesses that pay any employee more than a million dollars a year in total compensation. The business would pay a 5% tax on payroll expenses for each of those uh, highly compensated employees. This is a way of paying for something that Seattle voters approved in concept last year the so called social housing initiative. It would pay for a social housing developer that will build acquire manage and maintain mixed income affordable housing um, why why was that even put to a vote before there was funding associated with it Alex
3: good question um, and I think a lot of people had that question at the time right this is an interesting idea and as you said this is an issue that Quite literally hits home for people. The escalating cost of housing affects all of us. And as the city is at this point now, and it's certainly in, in where I live, majority renter. Where's um, that? Uh, I live in First Hill, proud to be a First Hill resident and a renter myself, raising a family in the city of Seattle. And we all feel it, right? Your paycheck. Comes, you give it to your rent, and whatever is left over at the end is what you're supposed to make a life on. And so the idea behind social housing, which is uh, a, a brand new model of housing. Is that it's permanently affordable, that it's um, mixed class, right? So we don't just have buildings of wealthy people, buildings of low income or working class people, that people are living together, creating mixed income neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and that we're able to sustain that over time. And so. Uh, can I highlight that yeah. to, to
1: underline that? This is for tenants making between zero. And one hundred twenty percent of the area median income, and the <laughs> rent would be priced at thirty mm-hmm. percent of their income mm-hmm. yeah. so is mix, and there is
3: are a- there are amazing examples of this being highly successful. The city of vienna of course is is the most prominent example, and they have um, created stabilized housing that is affordable to people and people's lives are able to flourish as a result. The housing developer, right, passed I-135 last year in February, and I think all of us are eager, um, people who care about housing, to, to see that institution, that organization fully stand up, hire a CEO, create a work plan, and, uh, and get ready to go. And, and, and one of the things that makes that possible is the funding to be able to do so.
1: I know this tax is opposed by the Seattle Chamber of Commerce. Any other reaction to it or questions about it?
2: Sure. It's a really bad idea. Why would you want to drive businesses out of Seattle? That's your tax base. All this will do is uh, penalize the best and the brightest and most highly uh, productive and exceptional business people, and those people will leave Seattle and reduce the tax base
1: well, you, your question was why would you do that and and Alex just laid out the why isn't this more a question of trade offs than well, we obviously must do it because it helps somebody or we obviously must not do it because it costs somebody.
2: I think you're right. I think it's a trade off and I don't think it's a good trade off
3: you want you want a, a low cost way to bring down the 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 cost of housing I got one for you right now All right there's there's three proven ways that we address housing affordability it's not an it's not an intellectual exercise there's plenty of research here one subsidy you invest in the housing that is difficult for the market to produce we do that through our housing levy that seattle voters were very generous in passing last year Two, supply the ability to build more houses in more places faster easier and cheaper and the city council and the mayor are going to have the opportunity to do exactly that at essentially no cost to the taxpayer uh in the comprehensive plan this year and that would be the ability to 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 create more housing again without having to raise taxes, without having um, to, to ask people to to, uh, to to pay up. And then, of course, stabilization, right? The protections that make it so that people have sustainability and predictability in their housing over a long time. So I am with you in and right in the Seattle Times today was talking about we have the fifth highest property taxes of anywhere in the whole country. And there are ways that we can make it so that we bring down the house of co- the, the cost of housing for people and the number one way that we can do that is to make it faster easier and cheaper to build more housing in more places and the city council and the mayor has the opportunity to do just that this year
1: what's your better alternative Saul? we know how hard it is for for some people to live in in the city do you how important for so the two questions how important do you think it is to have you know people providing childcare or whatever it is right to be able to live where they work and have that mix in the city um, is that is that a, is that a big deal? And if it is, um, then what's the alternative?
2: Well, I think Alex's recommendation makes sense to me. Build more housing. I don't think it makes sense. The other two ideas, I, I think, will be counterproductive. But building more housing,
4: I think, is a good solution. It's just easier. It's easier said than done. I mean, I, I've lived in Seattle all my life, and it just feels like we want to have this this town feel as we're becoming a bigger city. And like, when you look at how our city is zoned and how many neighborhoods are just, they just want to only be single family, but that's not, not only is it not affordable, it's not accessible. Right? So it's like, if we're not going to have apartment buildings in our neighborhoods, if if we're always going to fight against having multifamily units, I mean, something is going to have to give. And as Alex mentioned, like, I I think it was 2021 that Seattle Times ran the article, like first time in 100 years, we have more renters in Seattle than homeowners. Right. So like, it's just at some point, something is going to have to give and and y'all Seattleites are going to have to figure it out because you're leaving <laughs> because Seattle I, 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 I do to not Chicago. have a dog in this fight at this point anymore which is why I'm reluctant to dive in cuz I have a lot of thoughts but oh, I mean dive I, in. look <laughs> I don't know I just I think there's a lot of people in Seattle that that feel the way that Saul feels and I think that you know as time goes on and you know we're seeing how people vote we're seeing where the city trends I think it's clear where Seattle is headed I just don't know what it's going to mean for the people who actually live here, and the people who want to work here and live here, because our city is just so so expensive to live in. Mm-hmm. Any response?
2: I I I think he makes sense. I mean, I think he, I, I there's he said nothing that I don't agree with. It's just that we
1: we can point to uh, housing supply, but if it doesn't if it doesn't actually happen, then. Uh, the same people are going to pay over and over.
3: But why would it not happen? People want to live in the city of Seattle. It's a beautiful place to live. We have a thriving and diverse economy. And as we'll talk about later, this is one of the few places where we can count on some level of climate stability in an ever you know, uh, increasingly disastrous world. People want to live in Seattle. People want to build houses in Seattle. And every time you open up the zoning and you make it not illegal to build housing in more places, the housing comes. There is almost nothing that is more disastrous to our economy. Than to allow this rapid and continued cost escalation of people's basic need, which is a place to live. If your paycheck doesn't make your rent and give you any money at the end of it, you don't get to go to restaurants. You don't get to, um, you don't get to, you know, walk. You get to clog up the streets and trying to drive all over the place. Right? It's the the counter and continuing effects of this are very disastrous for our economy. But we need to you know run that's... for office. <laughs> yeah. I Again. Mean... But that's running up
1: against the fact that pe- a lot of people want the kind of neighborhood they came to Seattle for, they invested in, and a lot of people want what they want.
4: But, uh, you know, look at look at the uh, result. It's kind of a standoff. I, I think it is a standoff. I think it has been for a long time because I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I think that you could have sat there and said that five years ago. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's just like... What's going to stop us from not having to say that five years from now? And when we look at the demographics of our city and the people who can actually afford to live in our city, how are we to believe that we're going to have voters who can live here that are going to feel any different? Because if you're a homeowner and you live in Seattle, uh, there's a lot of statistical data that, that points to the income that you have to have to even be able to be in that demographic, and it's clear how those people have been voting lately.
3: That's right.
1: Well, here's another way to make housing affordable, would be to not let the rents rise too fast. There's a bill in our state legislature to limit rent increases. It didn't pass the Senate. It's not dead. It's alive in the House. It could still get through. It started out as uh, limit rent hikes to 5% a year. They negotiated that up to 15% a year rent increase. But opponents said even if you limit owners to a 15% increase, they might not that might not work for them. They might not rent out properties at all. And then we have even fewer a fewer homes available. Um first of all, Alex, the legislature banned rent control 40 years ago. Why would this be legal? Uh
3: because rent control is often associated with Other types of indexes. Right. So just like that, that's not a rule that's written in stone. It's not coming from on high. It's a law that was passed by people and people can unpass that law and create something different. 15 percent is. A pretty, if, if your rent goes up 15%, like you're going to feel that that's actually like a pretty significant cost escalation. Um, and other people, as you said, have, have mentioned other ways to do that, either a lower percent, there are some places where it's 1%, there are some places where it's indexed to inflation every year. Uh, so there's a variety of different tools here that make it so that renters who, you know, like you mentioned, the majority of people in our city have some pr- level of predictability about where they're going to be able to live
1: yeah, it's not, it, it, it doesn't, one reason it doesn't qualify as rent control because it doesn't limit how much landlords lords can charge renters. It's just about the percentage increase. What do you think, Saul?
2: Well, I would disagree with what you just said. Uh, they say it's not rent control because it doesn't uh, prohibit them from charging a certain amount of rent. But if you have a renter and they're going to renew the lease, you're limited in what you can charge that renter. So if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's rent control. Why isn't
1: it worth? If it's assuming it, it's legal, whether you you know whether someone likes it or not, why isn't this a, another way? Why isn't this a workable way to make living affordable for more people?
2: Well, this is one of those issues where we actually have a lot of evidence from other cities, New York included, where rent control really is a failure. Uh, it, it it prohibits people from people don't build when there's rent control. People can't maximize uh, their investment when they're in control, so they don't invest. Um, we're better off building more affordable housing than restricting landlords and what they can
4: charge. I mean, again, how? Where? <laughs> like, where's all the... We, we we need... I think they reported 1.1 1. 1 million units of housing in the next 20 years. That was the Department of Commerce. Where are we going to put that? Like, like, where could our city support that. And to, to take it back a step, 15% is astronomical. Uh, I've I talked to people before we had this conversation just to ask in full transparency, I own, so I haven't paid rent in a long time. But a lot of people say if if they have a 15% rent hike, they have to move. I just did a story here this week with one of our producers at KUOW. His rent went up 9.4%. He had to move. And had his landlord have raised it 10 percent, at least he would have gotten assistance from the city to help pay for that move. Mm-hmm. But what did the landlord do? They raised it 9.4 percent. So now another landlord doesn't. No one has to help assist that. So it's just like Seattle has to decide who we're going to be or are we going to be big business? Because, I mean, they'll they'll develop units if people could pay for them. It's just going to change the demographics of who can and can't live in our city. So, again, we have to decide as a city who we want to be.
3: Yeah, I think this is an interesting you you keep talking about kind of the, the renter owner differences, the way that we treat people who are renters and owners. If your mortgage went up. 15% right. every year, or if there was no rule at all and the bank could just increase your mortgage as much as they wanted any year over year and you had no control over that, that would not be a tolerable uh, or acceptable way to to. But that's housed. how mortgages
2: work now. If you, if you do an adjustable rate mortgage after three years, your rates get jacked up much more than 15%. If you get a 30-year locked, you're locked in. It's a, you have a contract. If you do a five-year rental, you're locked in on these prices. If you do a one-year, you're not. Uh, And by the way, I would agree 15% is a super high increase. The problem is that uh, it may be that, you know, the year after they lower it to 8%. The year after they lower it to 2%. I mean, there's a sliding scale and and a slippery slope. Um, But I, I don't think it's fair to bring in mortgages because mortgages, you have contracts where they're limited in what they can do unless you have a an arm. Yeah, people put down big down payments and they
1: trade, you know, they trade money for, for flexibility. Right, and they, that is, that is a trade off that, that not everybody wants to own, but
4: I, and I own Mike owns, but that's the, but that's the assumption that everybody has the money to be able to do that. Right. I know. Yeah. Look, I, I became an owner because I was living on Beacon Hill and I, I literally got to a point where, I was paying more in rent than I would be paying in a mortgage, so I was like, "Why would I keep doing this?" But you know, there was a time, uh, you know, my my mother speaks about these old days where renting was the cheaper option. You can rent and save until you can own. We're at a place in our city where renting isn't really the cheaper option, and if we allow rent to just increasing at the pace that it is while wages that people make from their jobs don't keep up with the actual cost of living, who the hell is going to be able to rent in Seattle? And it goes back to the thing, who will be able to live here? So the reason why I go back to the dynamic of renters and owners is because it's just acknowledging that half of our city are renters, but people who can't afford to own, they're going to be in a place where they're also, they can't afford to rent. Mm -hmm. Then what do we do?
3: Yeah, then we see massive levels of gentrification and economic displacement, the you know the growing populations in the suburbs, the associated congestion and and and, and fracture of, of, of communities as a result
2: which we've already seen.
3: Yeah, and it's not good.
1: Let us take a little break and come back and talk more about the news of this week. We had a big reaction to the um, skin exposures. Uh, found in some Seattle bars, and we'll talk about that and
0: more when we come back on KUOW's Week in Review. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, Reasons for Hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at Paxi.org. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com.
1: You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and I'm not alone. We've got Alex Hudson here. Executive Director of Commute Seattle. We have Saul Gamron here, Chair of the Nikki Haley for President's Campaign in Washington State. We have KUOW's Mike Davis here, and we are reviewing the news of this week gone by, including last week we told you about some Seattle gay bars protesting that they'd been harassed by an enforcement team of Seattle Police and the State Liquor and Cannabis Board. This goes back to the fact that in Washington, unlike any other state in the USA, you can't serve alcohol at strip clubs. Now, a strip club is where paid entertainers take their clothes off. But technically, the law also means you can't expose all of your skin if you're at a bar that serves alcohol. So when these inspectors went into various establishments looking for health code violations, business license violations, When it came to gay bars, they turned on, in at least one case, turned on flashlights and took photos of patrons and told the bars they had violated so-called lewd conduct laws because some patrons and one bartender had exposed some buttocks and a nipple. The Liquor and Cannabis Board did not officially cite the gay bars, but bar owners said their customers felt harassed, unsafe. There's a history of harassment of queer people in spaces. And now the state has paused enforcement of these rules, and the legislature is considering allowing strip clubs to serve alcohol like in every other state. Uh, What's your take on that, Saul?
2: Well, of course they should be allowed to serve alcohol. Uh, It's an antiquated law that needs to be repealed.
1: Well, as you know, an argument uh, against serving Alcohol in strip clubs is that it's a it's a terrible mix. You you know, inebriated people uh, getting all excited at uh, at clothes coming off is a is a recipe for trouble.
2: Right. Well, that's a myth because we've got forty nine other laboratories uh, that, where alcohol may be served and they are not experiencing these problems. So are you sure should, about that. Yes, I'm sure about that. Okay. So and it, there's no evidence that that's a problem. Mm-hmm. So it's just and and why are we we persecuting these uh, gay bars it's ridiculous mm-hmm. any other reaction
4: freedom <laughs> like I, I don't know this is I mean, just reading through this and seeing phrases like "scantly clad, like yeah. like it's really like these are phrases that we should still be governed by. Yeah. I don't know. This whole thing is antiquated. And the idea that you can't you can't serve alcohol in a strip club is, is just one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. And uh, I, social media was on fire with this. And I would say rightfully so. I mean, going into those bars where adults were doing adult things, there's so many bigger issues that we should be focused on than something like this.
1: Alex Hudson, do we have Democratic Republican unity here today on this?
3: We do. I could not possibly agree more. It's it's paternalistic, it's retrograde. Let adults do what adults want to do. And and I think I've heard it be mentioned several times in the media, right? There's a lot of nipplegate is certainly rippling across our city here and across our state. Um
1: it could be called a nipple ripple. You know, I'm not, i don't know.
3: <laughs> I mean, the idea that people are like soberly walking into a strip club uh, and just sitting there and sipping, you know, seltzer uh, while dancing happens uh, is is. Preposterous right people are they're getting inebriated outside of the club they're going to their cars and drinking alcohol and so if the issue is that we're trying to make a, a, a safe and healthy work environment for these workers, this is the least best way to do that because the bouncers, the bartenders, etc have no insight or control into how much a patron is 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 drinking.
1: Yeah, and, and uh theoretically bar t- you'd have your bartenders able to keep an eye on who's getting too drunk.
3: Yeah, they're literally trained and licensed to do exactly that. And and, and, and to the separate issue around, you know, what's happening inside, you know, just kind of standard issue bars. Again, these are twenty one year olds and up who are and and this is America which purports to be a free country. We can just let people just let their butts and their nipples hang out. And, and if you don't like it, then you can just stay
4: home. Yes. And I'm pro-labor, Bill. So I want to see these talented workers get as many tips as possible. Mm-hmm. More alcohol, that's going to mean more tips. Wow.
1: So, well, let's talk about, um, um, what's the word, externalities. Um, Saul, so I'm thinking of our drug laws, you know, we because we're talking about let adults do what they want to do but we ban some drugs uh, partly because people commit crimes sometimes when they're high or they steal stuff sometimes to pay for getting high. Isn't that the justification for banning booze. If, now, you don't believe there's any externality. There's no problem with uh, mixing booze and strip clubs. But we could be talking about other cases where we decide, when do we curtail individual freedoms? So since I have a, a Republican here, I often associate Republicans with, with, with liberty and, 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 and personal freedoms. What about the war on drugs?
2: Well, I think the war on drugs is uh, being reduced significantly. Our state's one of the leaders in that. Um, and again, I go back to the strip club issue. Um, you know, alcohol is legal in bars. We have um, you can get alcohol in a grocery store. Uh, there's no uh, you know negative connotation on alcohol like there is on other drugs. So the idea that it's uh, used to be, we fought that battle, and and we really liked alcohol again. Well, when I moved to Seattle, you could not buy alcohol on Sundays. You're right. Uh, and uh, Costco couldn't carry alcohol. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so we've we've come a long way, for better or for worse. Are you for drug decriminalization too? I am. Okay, the
1: libertarian take. Yes. Yeah. Does uh, I've heard mixed reports from our neighbor Oregon, where some people want to uh, recriminalize some drugs, but uh, but I haven't researched that issue either.
2: Well, I think that there's problems with decriminalization. Uh, there's problems without decriminalizing. Yes. I happen to believe that uh, people should be free.
1: Well, let's talk about whether people are free to uh, uh, tag walls with graffiti Um, because Seattle got word this week that it can start enforcing its anti-graffiti law again. This is a federal court ruling. This law, the graffiti law, had been found unconstitutional by a lower court. Mike, you've reported on this. What was supposedly wrong with Seattle's anti-graffiti
4: law? It was the... It was the language in the ordinance. And as I'm sure, you know, Bill, I'm not a lawyer, but I I do. (laughs) But I I did. I I talked to a couple of lawyers and they I just told them to put it in layman's terms for me so that I can understand. And I, I had a lawyer tell me that the way the ordinance is written in Seattle, if he was in court and he leaned over and he scribbled on like his assistant's notebook, he could be arrested on the spot because that's not his notebook. And he wrote on it.
1: Okay, without permission.
4: Without permission. So it's not that people want the wild, wild west for graffiti where you could just go on somebody's house and spray it. It's that the law is written in a way that gives the police a lot of leeway to enforce things that people would argue are not graffiti. And in this case that we're here to discuss, you have four people who used uh, charcoal and sidewalk chalk, which would literally wash away in the rain. And they wrote not on the building of a of a police precinct, but on temporary eco blocks. Mm -hmm. And they were arrested during a time when there was actually a moratorium on arrests. Right. So like and they wrote things, including if the police, they they were arrested by police. They were arrested by police. And if you read through the documents, which I did in their lawsuit, they also cited times where police were at community picnics where people were using sidewalk chalk to write things that were pro-police and no arrests were made. So it's not about the law itself. It's about the way the law is enforced. Any reaction?
3: Um. Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, you made the link between this and the and the drug cre- decriminalization. Drug decriminalization uh, only works if you have actual substance abuse treatment and other kinds of health care on the other side of it to give somebody an alternative. Right. And so uh, that's I think that's an important point. So, yeah. Is this going to be neutrally applied to any person writing anything anywhere? Of course not. We don't have the police officer resources. And and even if we did, we're not going to be spending them arresting children for drawing hopscotch on the sidewalk or rainbows. um, Yeah. Right. And 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 nobody would want that to be happening anyway. Right. And I think writing your name on a garbage can is is you know, is this the top priority for our city right now, given everything else that we're facing? I hardly think so. So um, when we were talking about this, I started doing a little research. I, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in, in ancient history. People have been doing graffiti in society for literally thousands of years. The The graffiti that is in Pompeii is some of the most famous and well-studied stuff ever. So if If our city council or our or anyone in our city thinks that they can figure this out and solve this problem here in the city of Seattle and in the year twenty twenty four that will be an absolute miracle so you know how do we prevent it I think we give people other alternatives we have you know proven solutions that show that where there's art and mural walls you reduce graffiti if you put um you know, art classes, other places for young people who are out there kind of expressing themselves in this way, alternatives and, and healthier outlets to do that, we're going to see a whole lot less of just kind of tagging. Saul, how's your
2: libertarian soul doing? My libertarian soul respects property rights. So I'm in favor of these anti-graffiti laws. And also these issues that, you know, Mike raised, which is a good one, but, you know, that's in the 2 to 3%. We're talking 95% of this is going to stop people writing on the freeways and writing on the community transit and, and the big problems and writing on the side of buildings and writing on people's uh, or precincts or whatever. And so I, I think we need to respect property rights. And there's nothing non-libertarian about that. I'm glad you brought up community transit. Alex, as someone who loves community transit
1: professionally and, and, and to, your, to your soul, I bet, uh, how about someone tagging a sound transit bus or rail car? How, do, do we want to allow it?
3: I don't love to see it, right? Like, uh, I, you know, I heard a lot from people, and, and I agree. Tagging, this kind of thing, it gives people the sense of, like, a, a lot of disorder. I don't love to see it. I want my train to be beautiful and clean and everything to be nice and lovely when I'm in there. And if I thought that laws were what stopped people from doing this kind of stuff, like, we would live in a very different society. That is not how people actually make their decisions um, for whether we want them to or not,
4: I love graffiti. Uh, I love art. I'm the art guy here. And and you all, love all graffiti. I you see, you
1: don't see disorder. Uh, you you look at graffiti and it's you're happy.
4: I see order within the chaos. I think I think there's a a place for everything, right? So like, would I want someone to come to my home and just spray it down? No, of course not. But I don't really think that that's what we're talking about when we're talking about this specific case. We're talking about uh, abuse of power. We're talking about SPD targeting people who are specifically writing anti-police messages, and to like speak to Alex's point, the city actually has taken steps. I've also like reported on initiatives introduced by Mayor Harrell, where you know he's he's moving money into the Office of Arts and Culture to make sure that people can make murals, which is literally the same thing, and and there are identifying businesses who want murals. and not it the same thing, though? Right.
1: You, you don't it's, see a distinction between a, a mural and any other tagging that you see I on the f- freeway overpass? Sign. I think
4: the difference between a muralist and a graffiti artist is that one is commissioned by the city, but I would also tell you from experience that a lot of times those are literally the same exact people. Mm-hmm. Some people, get they cross over and get paid for it. Now, when we're talking about writing on top of the freeway, that's dangerous. People die. We literally had a 14-year-old kid who died here recently doing graffiti so there is a safe way to do it but i i don't think that the the broken window theory of if you see graffiti then there's crime i don't believe in that no. okay
1: but so um you alex you see graffiti on your beloved sound transit car and you you don't like to see it mike you don't want to see your home sprayed down but should it be illegal in those cases Do you want prosecution of people who do the graffiti that you don't like?
2: Well, what's the alternative? So somebody can walk up to Mike's home and spray it down and do whatever they want uh, without recourse. Someone could deface a a bus, put all kinds of crazy stuff on it uh, without recourse. Of course you have to be able to prosecute these people. I think we ought to be able to, you know, we're all reasonable people. We ought to be able to to figure out a line. You know, we don't want police abusing it, um, but there needs to be areas where you have to be able to enforce non-graffiti
4: whether it's Mike's home or a community transit bus well, Saul is absolutely right like I, I don't have an argument against that. My problem is that it's really easy to say we have to be reasonable because SPD over and over and over shows that they're not reasonable. The whole reason why we're having this conversation is because they weren't reasonable. There was a moratorium on arrest and they still arrested people for drawing on temporary eco blocks that they were going to move anyway. Like that's the reason why we're here. This ordinance has been here. This isn't new. It's been like this. It wasn't until SPD abused their authority that we ended up here. So it's great to have the pie in the sky idea that we're all going to be reasonable. But the reality is we're not going to be reasonable.
1: To echo that, this judge said that plaintiffs had not demonstrated the law would be disproportionately used for unconstitutional purposes. Quote, the mere fact that the city and its officers have discretion to enforce the local ordinance in some circumstances and not others is not a sufficient basis for concluding that the local ordinance is wholly vague, such that it can never be enforced. But Mike is saying, yet in reality, nobody thinks that the enforcement of that uh, law had nothing to do with the F the police message versus children's rainbow
4: that it is pro- some people enforced. will disagree with me like I, okay. I don't want to act like i speak for everybody Fair enough. But that's that's my opinion Fair based enough. on the facts thank you for that yeah okay the,
3: the, too many opportunities for these things to become pretextual opportunities mm-hmm. to stop people based on something else that is happening um you know i said yeah i want my transit to look nice and and all that kind of thing but i also don't expect to live in a city that's a diorama Right. And, and and part of this is what I'm saying is, is graffiti tagging. All this stuff has been around and with us for a very long time. So what do we want to do? We clean it. There's special kind of paint that you can put on things. I used to run a neighborhood organization for First Hill. We installed a ton of public art, including murals on on top of things and spent a lot of time cleaning the graffiti up. And I don't you know it's not my favorite thing to do, but I'm not looking for those people to get arrested and us to spend sixteen thousand dollars a week incarcerating folks over, you know, drawing on a trash can.
1: That is our First Hill and Pompeii correspondent, Alex Hudson. Uh, Mike Davis is with us. Saul Gameron's here, Gameron Legal Consulting, and chair of the Nikki Haley campaign in this state. We're going to take a short break and come right back with more of Week in Review. We're chit-chatting here on KOW's Week in (laughs) Review. I'm just going to reveal, if you don't mind, what we said off the microphone, which basically, you said it, several people said it well, but what did you just say about people having what we have in common and, and our politics?
2: Well, I said that people are more than the sum of their politics. And I think Alex said that uh, we have a lot more in common than we have not in common.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think th- I have found that. Yes. I talked to thousands and thousands of people on the campaign trail, and mm-hmm. it is um, very clear to me that the mythology that we are all so deeply fractured and divided is... Um, fabricated
4: it's not true when you talk to real people yeah. I, I think i always learn that we people tend to have a lot more in common we have common goals we might have a different path to get there but i mean we're all here because we love the city we all want to be here so how do we make it better is always the,
3: that's right and that's, i think that these any anything that is trying to tell you that we are further away from each other than we are um should be deeply suspect what the intentions and purpose of that message is
1: Thank you for saying that on the microphone, because that's my experience, too, and it's worth saying on a show that, can, that gets political sometimes. So thank you. Um, we are—what uh, have we got? Nine minutes left in the show. So we, we often discuss on this program smaller cities and suburbs calling Seattle a hellhole of, of homelessness, et cetera, and then doing little or nothing to, to spread that burden. My home of Mercer Allen, for example. But this week, the city of Bellevue announced it's found an organization to run a pilot program letting people live in their vehicles on city-owned property. And uh, they expect to welcome their first clients there by early spring. Uh, I read in the Seattle Times this lot will have 20 spaces, a day center with bathrooms, showers, and kitchen facilities, emergency responders, staff who can connect people to services for employment, medical and mental health care, and other help finding housing. No drugs allowed. Any reaction to um, a possible first – now, this happens in churches here and there in Seattle and on the east side – Uh, but a um, uh, Bellevue doing what Seattle does in Interbay, um, RV lot,
3: vehicle lot on city-owned property. Yeah, I am a very firm believer that better is better. And that our politics needs to respond to the actual reality that people are experiencing. People are living in their cars. People are homeless. People are housing insecure. And the government's responsibility is to respond to that reality. Is this the same thing as a permanent house where somebody can live? No. Is it as good as that? No. Should Is that what our ultimate goal is? Yes. But in the meantime... Like it stops people from, you know, being kind of chased around, not knowing where they're going to sleep that night and having a little microscopic sense of stability and predictability from which to build a more fulfilling life.
2: Well, I think Bellevue has demonstrated that uh, they're pretty sensible over there. Uh, They've got a lot of good policies. This is an experiment. And uh, let's see how it plays out.
1: Yeah, it's been an uneven experiment. Uh, more success in some places than others. Not, you know, in in Seattle so far, it I mean, can be expensive. It can yes, Mike. No,
4: it's just good to see. We got to try something. I'm never opposed to trying things, and this is an actual thing that they're trying, and we don't know how it's going to turn out, but it is worth keeping an eye on, and I hope that it goes well. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I want rest- to. There's this question around cost, right? Yes. What is the cost to not do this? There is a moral cost.
1: To underline that, to, I'll, yeah. uh, let, I'll finish, please make your point, but the city of Bellevue is going to pay $672,350 for, it's not to, 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 to park 20 people, it can take 20 at a time. So the idea is people cycle through this situation. Go yeah, on.
3: Uh, uh, <laughs> a great deal. That uh, like that is that's an incredible deal to to get people twenty people in a, in a more stable and predictable housing situation uh, from a financial perspective. But but we pay for homelessness whether we fix it or not, and in fact, it is a lot more expensive to continue to allow the human suffering. Uh, and misery that is that is created by our homelessness crisis than it is to fix it, both from a financial perspective and, and I think it's just really important for us to always keep in mind, like, what kind of people do we want to be? Um, And so I I think we need a whole lot more of this. I want to see more tiny house villages in the city of Seattle. They can remove the restrictions in the zoning code and our comprehensive plan update that make it so that we can put hundreds of tiny house villages and get people inside. I've spoken to a lot of people who live in those places, and they are very grateful for somewhere that is better than the street. Um, And so I think it's our, our moral and financial responsibility.
1: That sounds like a city council candidate Alex Hudson was. Uh, And we're finding uh, we're finding agreement again on that topic. Let me whip through a few more things that happened this week and then we'll wrap up the show. I was surprised to hear Kathy McMorris Rogers, a powerful Congress member, House Republican Spokane, say she's not going to seek reelection. She's been there two decades in Congress. She chairs the House Emergency or rather House Energy and Commerce Committee. Did you know that was coming, Saul? All you Republicans talk to each other?
2: Yeah, we have secret codes, uh-huh. as you know, Bill. Uh-huh. But uh, no, this is a so, it's a watershed moment. But it's more evidence that the House is just dysfunctional. Uh, she had no serious opponent. She had a uh, large war chest. Uh, she was going to sail to re-election. Yep. Uh, she's a leader in the House and a very good Congresswoman and respected by both sides of the aisle. But you can't get anything done right now. And and you know, even though they're in the majority, it's not meaningful. It's not fulfilling. And so people like her, look, Derek Kilmer, uh, Derek Kilmer is dropping, you know, is retiring as well. People are not finding it fulfilling to be in Congress right now.
1: Well, I know you said you're not on the Trump train. And I know when you say, you know, respected on both sides, there there have been people, I'm sure other issues, I haven't followed her Spokane politics, but there have been plenty of people not liking her um, going along with uh, Donald Trump and maybe that partisanship and that argument makes it. More harrowing? I don't know. She might run for office again. She could run for Senate for all we know. Well,
2: first of all, the Donald Trump stuff probably helped her more than hurt her. She was the only congresswoman in the state uh, not to vote for Trump's impeachment. Yeah. So uh, I don't think that was an issue at all.
1: Okay. Uh, We got a report on the January's Boeing accident, and it wasn't the bolts on that plug door that made it blow (coughs) off in midair because there were no bolts. Probably an installation error at the Renton factory, Boeing's factory. The head of the FAA told Congress this week he supports a more hands-on approach by the regulator to ensure planes are safe to fly a federal labor law judge ordered starbucks to reinstate a high-profile labor organizer and barista who resigned in 2022 after her buffalo store voted to unionize she started working full-time for the union said she only had time to work one starbucks shift per week but the company kept scheduling her two or three shifts starbucks denied that had anything to do with her union activity and said the company is exploring options for further legal review. I'm getting through these because we're almost done with the show. Whale watchers counted a record number of bigs killer whales last year in the Salish Sea. These are orcas who don't normally live in the Salish. They're sometimes known as West Coast transients. Unlike the struggling southern resident orcas, they eat pretty much just Chinook salmon. Those are the southern resident orcas, but the bigs eat harbor seals, sea lions, and porpoises. So your children should enjoy that bit of... Wildlife realism If they happen to see that And finally uh, Brandi Clark Finally won a Grammy She won Best Americana Performance In a duet With her fellow Rural-ish Western Washington Lesbian country Americana star Named Brandi That would be Brandi Carlisle Who produced the album And Bernard Do we have a little bit Of that Grammy winner? I don't like I don't like Admitting the song Makes Dear me cry
0: insecurity mm-hmm.
1: I'm insecure about my insecurity. It's
0: okay I'm vulnerable. Again, don't try to flirt with me. You're not really my friend, but you take up half this bed.
3: Living rent-free in my head, all insecurity.
1: Bit of the duet there. Brandi Carlile and Brandi Clark winning Should a Grammy. And um, we'll just cut out reference to my crying when I hear this song. I think we can just... Can we snip (laughs) that out in the post-production, Bernard? Thank you. Um, Finally... Let's turn to something to smile about. We've got two minutes left, and I'll, I'll just start with with one. We always end the show this way. I wouldn't normally share a story like this because it sounds like uh, the work of the Alaska Airlines PR department, but it's nice to hear something about air travel that doesn't include children's shirts being ripped off their bodies at 16,000 feet, especially if you've got to fly soon. So a Woodland Park Zoo employee was flying Alaska recently. Few months ago carrying six rare Chilean flamingo eggs in an incubator, the zoo worker said to the flight attendant, My incubator stopped working. Can you help me keep these eggs warm? The flight attendant knew that pulling the bolts out of the door plug would make the cabin colder, so instead she went back to the galley, found some rubber gloves, filled them with warm water, Zoo worker put the gloves around the eggs. Crew members refilled the gloves with new warm water. Other passengers lent coats and scarves. And the flight attendant uh, helped get those eggs safely to Woodland Park Zoo. They hatched and the flight attendant and her baby granddaughter came to Woodland Park Zoo to meet the six new chicks, one for every bolt that was not on the door plug of Flight 1282. And it's the first time the zoo has had flamingos hatched since 2016, and one of them is named Sunny after that little granddaughter, so you can meet Sunny and other flamingos at Woodland Park. That made me smile. (laughs) Anybody else smile about anything this week?
4: Uh, Man, I'm smiling because I get to do this with you, Bill. This is the first show that I did. This is my introduction to KUOW. People don't know this. You're a big reason on why I landed here. So I'm just happy that this can be my final goodbye.
1: That would be a great legacy for me, Mike. I'm happy to be any small part in bringing you here. Uh, Anyone else?
2: Well, I've been smiling all week because I've been looking forward to all the fantastic food I'm going to have. Watching the Super Bowl on Sunday, <laughs> okay. I we're going to my son's house. He's a chef. He's going to make his famous chili, and I can't wait.
1: Enjoy that. How about you, Alex?
3: Uh, I'm happy about the return of normal light rail service and yeah! Sound Transit.
1: I came back to light rail this morning. Me too. Feel guilty about going away for a few days, but welcome back. I love it. <laughs> Uh, and thank you. Welcome to you. We had Mike Davis here, KOW's arts and culture reporter, and you know I'm going to miss you. Can we have lunch after the show? Of course. Okay. Mike, uh, great job being an arts, arts reporter here. Thank you for Thank that. you, Bill. Alex Hudson of Commute Seattle, transit mobility policy expert. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Sal and Saul Gammerin, Gammerin Legal Consulting, and also the state chair of the Nikki Haley for President campaign. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for listening and please join us again next week for Week in review